It has been a long couple of months. Civil society seemed to regrow. There was much hope for reconciliation within fractured families, and church attendance online increased as those desperately in need reached out for a higher power. Could this be the stuff of revival? Could this be the desperately needed turn back to God through Christ that the nation and world needs to repair itself? What should never have been political became so. Those protesting for their liberties were demonized and misrepresented, and those concerned with their health and welfare, as well as their families, were castigated as cowardly and ill-informed. Across the board, straw men were stuffed and set up for ridicule, while truth took a backseat to partisanship and pandering. The powers that be spared no expense in pressing hard on the cracks already apparent in America's civil society and worked to drive us further apart. COVID-19 was many things to many people, and so many unique stories unfolded during its reign. But alas, COVID-19 was not the end-all cultural moment that some had hoped. Fortunately, neither was it the end-all cataclysm that some had forecasted. It has not passed unfelt, however, and its true impact has yet to be realized as the deaths of despair and abuse that the pandemic has hidden, as well as the economic impact is uncovered and properly parsed in the months and years to come. There was much hope for but a moment, a breath of fresh air for a newly opened world. But the moment has passed, and our society has been presented with a challenge that is not new in the slightest, but strikes at the heart of the fracturing of civil society in the West, and in America particularly. It is an issue upon which I believe the future of this nation and global stability hinges, and one that has not been effectively addressed historically. I am speaking, of course, about the series of incidents that unfolded in Brunswick, Georgia, and in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the unjust deaths of Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd. My name is Thorne Winter. Welcome, fellow expats of Eden. Before continuing, I want to offer up a prayer, because the issues at hand cut deeply to the heart of the human spirit, and there's no way to have this conversation unemotionally. I contend that justice must remain blind, and the cold, methodical process of law be respected in its designated states and municipalities but I cannot in good conscience hold the leadership positions I hold in my home, family, church, and community, let alone profess my faith in Jesus Christ and not add my voice to this conversation. I've been convicted in my time doing this podcast that although my reach is small, there are those within it that need to hear what I say from time to time. No matter how small, I have a platform, and as such, I'm morally obligated to make the most productive kingdom use of it and to speak the truth as I see it in love. Heavenly Father, thank you for the breath in my lungs today and the reminder that it brings that you formed mankind from the dust of the earth to reflect your holy image and chose to bestow life upon us not by word or gesture, but by your very precious breath into our first human father's nostrils. Thank you, Father, for the blessings that you have poured out not only on my life, but likewise upon the lives of those living presently in what is by historical standards the safest and most equitable society ever conceived of or implemented. Please forgive me for taking those blessings for granted, and likewise, please forgive me for resting in the complacent stance that merely because things are better now than they have ever been historically, that they cannot be improved, and are not by their very nature as earthly constructs fallen and subject to corruption and decay. I pray for your very blood to be sprinkled upon the rest of what I'm about ready to write and say, as I have but an inkling in my heart that how I, as a believer, address this matter can either serve to heal or further divide my community and this nation. Please show me where I am wrong and give me the wisdom and humility to recognize and admit it. 
I pray for nothing of my own sin nature to come across in this entry, even if it makes it past my keyboard, recording, and editorial process. I pray that it falls upon deaf ears, and only what is of you is articulated. I pray that this is heard by those whom you intend it for. I pray that they receive it in the spirit in which I intend it. I pray that it will be a constructive addition to the conversation and not a mindless resounding of gongs or clanging of cymbals. I pray for a spiritual awakening and revival, and I pray for this moment in history to be worked into it, so that we will not look upon these times as merely an ugly scar upon our nation's history, but a moment in which something was finally done. I pray for wisdom in our governing authorities. I pray for you to work through them, and for the Spirit of Christ to be embodied in them. I pray above all for unity. I pray for your church to reflect and endeavor to undertake the difficult but deeply significant work necessary in order that our nation and world are drawn closer to you. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen. I must start by saying quite plainly that I detest empty virtue signaling. While I do not doubt the sincerity of those whom I know personally who have raised their voices over the course of the last month, I've worked in media and communication since I was a teenager. I understand precisely how propaganda works, and have seen too much of the world and history. Frankly put, it's easy enough to contribute an affirmative voice to a cause in the heat of a moment, but extraordinarily difficult to dig down and do the work necessary to address what lies beneath the pain and confusion. For those who are sincere, this is not for you. But for those who have offered up a word merely for the sake of profit, for fear of being castigated for silence, or for the sake of earning points in a cultural battle that you have no intent in fighting, I humbly request that you examine yourself and your heart. I've been silent over the last few months. While I had every intention in keeping a bi-weekly schedule of writing and releasing podcasts, I've come to realize that to hold to such a schedule would only cheapen my words and serve to pervert via marketplace values what should be a plain parsing of the world and my heart through the lens of Jesus Christ for the sake of those who might listen. I have been silent over the last few weeks, not out of lack of concern nor care for the events that have transpired, but out of a sincere desire to be very deliberate and accurate with my speech and my outlook. My wife can attest to the conversations behind closed doors as I have grappled with this topic, desperately seeking out the truth amid the partisan confusion. It was a time of reflection, listening, reading, and clarification. It was a time in which I caught but a glimpse of my biases, the shortcomings of my cultural perspective, and what will be, at least for me, the path forward in Christ. I am white, a mutt, a melange of Scottish, Irish, English, and Belgian blood with a smattering, allegedly, of Cherokee. Though the genetic testing on that end has proven inconclusive, so who knows. I frankly don't care a great deal about my ethnic heritage, but I have thoroughly enjoyed exploring my cultural heritage. Celtic music, a deep love for Cherokee folklore, an affinity for the southern highlands and the wilderness, which I have elaborated on at length in this podcast. But all of this is cultural, and could have just as easily come from my upbringing in the foothills of Appalachia. I will acknowledge the cold, hard reality that my ancestors were not perfect because it serves to teach a lesson that every single human being ought to take to heart, that every human being has the propensity for evil, and that no one on earth lives up to the glory of God. We are broken people living in a broken world, and we need a savior to set things right. My socioeconomic background is varied as my parents progressed through their careers, but I think it's safe to say that we were upwardly mobile, very well off, and never wanted for anything. 
My mother is truly unique in my family as she escaped cyclical poverty in rural South Carolina through hard work, dedication, and education. An attitude that she passed on to me and my siblings, all of us carrying with us a natural tendency towards workaholism. That, however, is my family history, not my race. My family upbringing was such that the individual, not the individual's group, was what mattered. If ever once in my childhood I or my siblings crossed a line into judging an individual based on their skin color, we were quickly rebuked and corrected. We were not raised in a household that considered race as anything but circumstance, and certainly did not consider it to give nor take value from an individual. To think otherwise was unspeakably shameful. My family endeavored in their best efforts to live up to Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, to judge out of the content of character, not the color of skin. This has led to confusion over the years. See, I'm a naturally quiet individual and have had my standoffishness interpreted with a great deal of anger and personal attack as racial prejudice. Politically, I lean towards personal liberty and limited government and am highly suspicious of public figures in both the public and private sector and the cults of personality that form around them. This leaves me as something of a political orphan every four years or so, and unfortunately, when I raised concerns about the Obama campaign's individual policy points, I was accused of only caring about the candidate due to the color of his skin, not the policy positions. As I have lived my life in high school, college, and beyond, hearing about supposed racial injustices, I have never quite known what to think about the accounts and have tended towards the notion that perhaps our nation is making too much of race and is overly sensitive. It's not supposed to matter, right? The lines I used are familiar, and I see and hear them echoed across social media today. Slavery ended in the 1860s, Jim Crow is a thing of the past, the civil rights movement was successful, what's everyone complaining about, can't we just get over it, all lives matter. Further complicating things in my mind has been the prevalence of quote-unquote identity politics in today's political discourse. The notion that an individual has some degree of social ranking based on immutable qualities such as race or biological sex. The logic bolstering such dialogue is, I believe, well-intentioned at its best as society seeks to reach dispossessed individuals, but ultimately toxic in its application. Anyone who has followed the churning news cycles of the last four years have seen firsthand the public shaming, deplatforming of individuals with differing opinions, and a reactionary public conversation that relies on emotions, not facts. Individuals desperately attempting to show how woke they are while canceling those who do not pass the purity test. A test whose criteria changes daily as the window of civil discourse shrinks. The notion of judging an individual based on anything immutable is detestable to me. And our society's reversion to angry, petty allegiances to identity groups has caused me to dig in my heels, be hypercritical of social justice, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. While I adamantly refuse to relegate individuals to nothing more than demographic data, I have realized over the course of the last few weeks that there is a negative consequence to completely ignoring immutable qualities of an individual, and they are playing out in real time in the conversation surrounding George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery. In considering race to be a non-factor in daily life, one runs the risk of ignoring the cultural history that an individual might carry with them, and therefore the lens through which an individual might interpret the world. I firmly believe that the individual is sovereign, the ultimate minority in the world with the perspective, individual struggles, and a history completely unique to that person alone. 
I firmly believe that, as envisioned and written, the United States Constitution outlines a society governed by individuals, absent any consideration of their immutable qualities. This is nothing short of miraculous from a historical perspective, as mankind has historically divided into groups and gone to war over their differences. I firmly believe that the history of this country has been a series of reconciling that miraculous ideal of individual sovereignty with reality. The inherent call for equality codified in the United States Constitution is evidenced by the fact that the Confederate States of America were founded in direct opposition to that ideal in order to continue the subjugation of black Americans at a point in history when America was prepared to undertake the necessary work of abolition. In the Cornerstone speech made shortly prior to the start of the Civil War at Fort Sumter, Confederate Vice President Andrew H. Stevens admits as much. He said, The prevailing ideas entertained by Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers at the time of the formation of the old Constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with, but the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or another, in the order of providence, the institution would be evanescent and pass away. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the idea of a government built upon it. When the storm came and the wind blew, it fell. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based on this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. This truth has been slow in the process of its development, like all other truths in various departments of science. Andrew H. Stevens, March 21st, 1861. Had the founding document of the United States not been a miraculous codification of the inherent rights of mankind, there would have been no reason whatsoever for the secession of the slaveholding southern states, nor the bloody conflict that resulted. Through civil war and civil conflict, America has clawed its way forward, trying desperately to live up to its founding ideals, becoming a beacon of hope the world over and leading the way in raising much of the world out of extreme poverty over the course of the last century. I believe that this country is a gift from God. I believe that it's been remarkably blessed, and I believe its citizens live in a society that our ancestors would have killed to participate in, that our peaceful protesters are permitted to do so largely unimpeded, that arrests and interactions with police amidst the turmoil do not, absent of a minority of cases, result in violence and death, that we are not facing the type of unilateral action taken by authoritarian regimes that see its dissidents gunned down in the streets or swept away to labor camps without even a trial. This illustrates that this country is still a place that tries to live up to its founding principles. We have room to improve, but we are a free people. But America is not an idol in my heart. I will not pretend that we have been sinless. Our history is marred by the reality that we enslaved human beings and profited from it. And yes, some of our founders were complicit and active participants. The horrors of the Atlantic slave trade, I cannot fathom. I don't understand it, and I can't comprehend the deep agony of the soul that those men, women, and children must have experienced in both being ripped from their homeland, as well as stripped of their dignity as human beings. I cannot understand what it means to be part of black culture with that level of historical trauma. I cannot understand what it is like to be barred from public spaces due to skin color nor to have loved ones who did experience such hardship, keeping the oral tradition alive and well, reminding generation after generation of how far they have come, 
and precisely what human beings are capable of. I cannot understand the unique cultural perspective of black Americans, but I can certainly listen and do my best to empathize. While I have not yet been convinced that America is systematically racist, as the letter of the law reflects that everyone is free from oppression due to immutable characteristics, I can follow my worldview to its logical conclusion. The individual is sovereign, with a unique history, series of struggles, culture, and perspective. Regardless of statistics or what is codified in law, I cannot dismiss the accounts from black Americans who have experienced racism. These are individual human beings with individual experiences that I have absolutely no ability to step into as a white man. The system itself may not be racist, but it is comprised of people. The law may be the law, but there is no legislating the human heart or mind. So, what is to be done? Tear it all down? I don't think so. Divisive, vitriolic discourse surrounding the issue of race in America is precisely why this problem has not yet been resolved. Oversimplifying this matter into partisan dialogue and adamant insistent that the other side is merely ignorant or being manipulated at best, or willingly hateful at worst, fosters nothing but anger and a hardening of hearts across the board. It has to stop. I do not think either side of this issue is entirely right or entirely wrong, and I think both sides of the issue have more in common than one would suspect at face value. In general, both sides want justice in the death of George Floyd. Both sides want reform to prevent future police brutality. Both sides are incensed at the presumed corruption that enabled the events that led to the shooting of Ahmed Arbery. Americans are, overall, united in response to these events. These tragic deaths of people that are made in the image of God should and have unified us as a country in a fight for justice and reform on all levels, yet they have been used to divide and polarize people even further. This is despicable. We cannot allow this to continue. We must humbly start conversations, find the common ground, and identify and discuss the differences at hand. We must genuinely listen and empathize, even and especially with those that we disagree. We must see each other as equals, having inherent worth and not as political adversaries. People are grieving, people are hurting, and we are far too quick to speak than to listen. In my humble opinion, this is the path forward, and the church has to lead the way. At this point, I want to shift my focus specifically to the church, because the secular world is going to do what it's going to do regardless and we cannot follow in their footsteps, making idols out of our political ideologies or personal experiences. The Church of Jesus Christ has always been transcendent and unique, a brotherhood, a family, that stands in the gap and does through Jesus Christ what cannot be done in any other context. We are not interested in politics. We are interested in hearts, bringing the message of salvation in opposition to the spiritual powers of a dying world. We need to recognize the fact that the Church of Jesus Christ is a church without borders, walls, or ethnicity. We are a family of nations, and the story of the Bible, and specifically the early church, is the story of gathering all of humanity, across all nationalities and races, back to God. Scripture tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We are to be unified as one people. That does not mean that we are to be homogenous. All of scripture shows God using individuals with unique differences to serve his purposes, often those whom you would never expect. Jacob, Rahab, Ruth, Esther, Ehud, King David, the Apostle Matthew, the Apostle Paul, all are unlikely heroes in their respective stories. 
Christ himself was born into a lowly estate, becoming a craftsman in a veritable backwater, subject to cultural misunderstanding and prejudice, before taking on his earthly mission, a life of itinerant street preaching to those whom society ignored. Likewise, the multitude from every nation, the final undoing of Babel mentioned in Revelation, indicates that the story that God has woven is one that acknowledges differences between human beings and unites them under the banner of Christ, making use of our differences for the betterment of the kingdom. We are one in Christ, unique parts of the body, none of us more or less important than any other. So, I submit that we ought to take a moment to acknowledge our differences, particularly from a cultural or racial perspective. For me personally, this is about the most uncomfortable thing that I can think of due to my upbringing. Here's what I know from my cultural background. Two things can be simultaneously true. First, the codified text of the laws in place do not allow for the type of racism that we saw under Jim Crow. We have made great strides in that respect. Equally true, however, is that a great number of black people in America have had personal experiences that do not square with this reality, indicating that there are injustices to address. In the public discord, I've seen nothing but disgust for racism and prejudice when it has been brought to light, and therefore don't think that anyone except for a small minority of extremists are in any way in favor of racism in any capacity in America. What is perceived as callousness via inaction or silence in the wake of these tragedies is largely the desire to maintain a respectful silence in lieu of stirring the pot, and the cries of all lives matter reflects a culture that has tried to move past the issue of race and isn't sure what is left to be done after the type of historical discriminatory practices endemic in America have been outlawed. I have likewise heard a great deal of frustration from fellow Christians who simply do not know what to say, and are concerned about the anger directed at any who misspeak, or at any who inquire in good faith and out of a genuine desire to learn about the facts backing the assertion that America is a racist place that victimizes people of color. This makes many unwilling to engage in the conversation for fear of loss of face, relationships, or at worst their occupation. Our current political climate and cancel culture makes much of ostracizing intellectual and political others, subjecting dissenters to public shaming, and that scares the daylights out of people. There's also a knee-jerk response in the white community that asserts, I'm not responsible for this, and I'm not apologizing for something that I didn't do. However, I don't think that anyone outside of an extremist minority is asking for white people to take direct, punitive responsibility for these individual acts of injustice. I do, however, think that there is a call for justice, a call that has to be seen, heard, and understood, to acknowledge the individual injustices being protested, and to acknowledge the deep pain that they bring to the surface, to mourn with those who mourn. In order to do this as white Christians, it may be helpful to consider the fact that we don't have the same historic experience as our black brothers and sisters. As such, we don't have the same cultural perspective through which to view the world. We don't know what it's like to have been raised in a culture that developed in a time where people were ostracized due to an immutable characteristic like skin color. It's not in our history. We do, however, have the history of the Christian church that we can consider and hopefully utilize to reframe our perspective on this issue. Consider the early church, human beings ostracized and persecuted, gathering in secret, and forming a brotherhood and family around the commonality that simultaneously united them together and separated them from society, Jesus Christ. Consider the history of slavery and racism in the United States. Human beings ostracized and persecuted both before and after emancipation, gathering in secret to worship while enslaved, and afterwards being forcibly excluded from gathering with those not of the same race. 
It's understandable that the culture that would form in the wake of such an experience would be similar to the early church in respect to the familial bond and brotherhood that simultaneously unites them together while separating them from wider society, the color of their skin. What's dawned on me over the course of the last few weeks is that white Americans, by and large, don't feel any sense of kinship with other white Americans beyond their common bond as Americans. At most, we recognize political or religious affiliation, or perhaps common interests, but I don't think we genuinely feel like those who share our race have inherent importance to us. That's all well and good, as it's obvious to see where placing value on whiteness has led our country in the past. But consider the alternative. Based on my reading of black theologians and listening to other black voices in this space, and after talking with some colleagues who have had positive experiences working towards racial reconciliation within their churches, I've learned that the black community tends to feel kinship because of the history of oppression in this country. And as such, each instance of racism that we see as a nation is felt on a much deeper familial level, allowing the community to unite and support against persecution. It's a beautiful thing, and I think regardless of our cultural backgrounds, we could certainly do with feeling more strongly about the pain that other human beings are experiencing, and considering what we can do about it in our own unique way. That consideration has clarified a great deal of the cognitive dissonance I've been feeling about the current state of things. And while I vehemently disagree with much of the discourse that's coming from the political left on the subject, I likewise don't think that digging in to repeat statistics and contend that black people in America are somehow mistaken about their own felt experience is the way to go either. I can't pretend to fully understand the matter at hand, but I can't pretend that there's not a problem in this country. The image of a black man being cornered in a residential area and being shot after he tries to defend himself. The image of a cop with his knee on a black man's neck despite the protests of everyone in the vicinity. This is not okay, and the deep hurt that's come to the surface as a result of these two incidents, as well as others that have not been nearly as publicized, is real and valid. I can't lend support fully to either the political left or the political right on this issue, because I don't think to do so would be biblical. There's too much vitriol and refusal to cross the aisle on both sides of this issue. Too much anger, too much hate. We can acknowledge our different cultural pasts, can acknowledge our unique cultural experiences and perspectives, and we can unite in moving forward as one people united in Christ, working towards the common purpose of kingdom work. Jesus Christ cuts straight through to the heart. And in that spirit, I'm attempting to walk a fine line towards genuine unity and reconciliation. It's what Christians have always endeavored to do, even if our attempts have been flawed. If we are unwilling as Christians to find the common thread, then the world will step into the void and, being unredeemed, will work in the manner that the world always works when race and ethnicity become topics of conversation or points of value beyond simple humanity or cultural differences. History illustrates clearly what happens when ethnicity or other immutable qualities becomes the source of value or lack thereof in a societal sense. Nazi Germany's fascination with Aryans, Japanese racial supremacy and the atrocities it wrought on Nain King, European conquest of Africans in the Atlantic slave trade and chattel slavery, apartheid in South Africa, various inquisitions seeking to subjugate those of differing religious beliefs, the Rwandan and Armenian genocides, the pogroms of Eastern Europe, the policies of contemporary China that enslaves Uyghurs, bulldozes churches, and disappears dissidents for thought crime. This is to say nothing of the impact of blind allegiance to group identity on a broader timeline beyond the last few centuries. I believe there is a path towards racial reconciliation in the middle of all of this, and I believe that it's the church's job to pick up the mantle. 
I believe that addressing this as the body of Christ will lead to flourishing unlike anything we've ever seen, and quite possibly the revival that is so desperately needed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Expats of Eden. You can find more information about the show, our full text and audio archives, and ways to support the show at expatsofeden.com. Expanse of Eden is a Thorns Attic production. All rights reserved. <laughs>